0: Good morning. 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 All right, we do welcome you here this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather in his name, in his name alone. Um, If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And before we do anything else, let's go ahead and read the chapter, uh, excuse me, read the portion this morning, which is Revelation three. Verses 1 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is Revelation 3 verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now verse 7, we transition to the church at Philadelphia and to the angel, Of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are, are back in the book of Revelation. Uh, we came back to chapter 2 last week. We started this series in Revelation several weeks ago. We took a little break as we considered the tabernacle uh, just a couple of weeks ago. But here we are in Revelation chapter 3. We recognize that Revelation chapter 1, like many chapter 1s, is foundational to the book of Revelation. However, there's a distinct contrast when we come to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. When we come to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, which should be and could be taken as a unit, we are considering seven churches that receive seven letters. These are real churches, so far as we know, in real cities that received real letters from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We've already considered, I think, four of the churches. Today, we're going to consider two more, the churches of Sardis and Philadelphia. If we take the two of these churches together, as we've just read, there is a sense in which this is like a tale of two cities, a tale of two churches. The two churches stand in stark contrast to one another. Both are churches, yet they are distinctly different in their substance. In a real sense, they are at best superficially the same, but fundamentally different. Two churches that stand in stark contrast to one another. In the church of Sardis, we have the dying church, yet... In Philadelphia we have the devoted church. In the church at Sardis we have the church of the fraud. In the church at Philadelphia we have the church of the faithful. In the church at Sardis we have the church of the lifeless. But in the church at Philadelphia, the church of the loyal. In the church at Sardis we have the church of the spurious. And yet in the church at Philadelphia we have the church of the steadfast and sincere. At Sardis, we have the Church of Condemnation, and yet in Philadelphia, the Church of Commendation. Sardis, materially rich and yet spiritually poor. Philadelphia, physically weak and yet spiritually strong and rich. Both of these churches had their struggles, no doubt, as we've already observed with so many of the churches, whether it was pressure or persecution or some other trial, they had their struggles. But the Lord Jesus Christ would be the solution. Each of these churches are introduced by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he would be the solution to whatever struggles they were having. We've already heard about this, but as the Lord Jesus Christ introduces himself one church after the next, he uses different ways that he distinctly identifies himself and the ways that he identifies himself would reassure them of the fact that he was the, pro- of the solution to their problems. Let me give you two outlines as we get going here. Um, we have two churches this morning, all right? <clears throat> Sardis and Philadelphia. The outlines are going to be very similar And yet there are some differences, as we've already heard, the churches do stand in contrast to one another. So I'm going to just turn just for a minute so I can be sure I can read this. Sardis and Philadelphia, both of them begin with the Christ. Both of them will end with the call. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That's a call to each of us today. If you have an ear, let him hear because these letters we recognize were for the church, that specific church, but they're applicable to all of us. He who has an ear, let him hear. They begin with the Christ, they end with the call. In the church at Sardis, the Lord Jesus Christ will waste no time getting into words of condemnation. This is a sad thing. We're going to consider this. But at the church at Philadelphia, there will be words of commendation. Um. The church at Sardis and the church at Philadelphia are both going to have some commands. We do want to make note that the commands to Sardis are commands for correction, for correction. The command to Philadelphia is not a command for correction, but it's actually a command that they kept, a command that they kept, and we'll see that. There is a, a, there is a commendation to the church at Sardis, once we get through a few of the, the condemning words, and we'll get to that. And in uh, the church at Philadelphia, will consider the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they both do have some words of consolation, of consolation. So the church at Sardis. This is Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. Many historians will tell us that the church at Sardis was an affluent church. It was an affluent city. Um Somebody wrote this, the first coinage ever to be minted in Asia Minor was minted in Sardis. Therefore, Sardis was the place where modern money was born. Sardis was a city situated at the junction of several trade routes, making it a city of easy money. Other historians will tell us that the city was a city well-known for its softness and its luxury, and that the combination of easy money and loose moral, um, loose moral environment made the people of Sardis notoriously soft and pleasure-loving. This was the type of city. This was the environment of the church. Assuming that these things are true, we wouldn't be left to wonder that these things took drastic effect on the church at Sardis, a city affluent a city with easy money. The Lord Jesus would say this, and I think this is very applicable to us as we consider a city, a church placed in a city where there's plenty of money, plenty of resources, plenty of fun. The Lord Jesus would say this again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He would say again in Matthew 13, Now, he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. We won't be left to wonder as to whether... The riches and affluence and pleasure seeking society that the church at Sardis was situated in had effect on them. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. As we consider the Christ and He identifies Himself, He will again, I reiterate, give to this church the solution to their problems. We're going to see their problem in summary is that they were a dead church. And we're going to think about that. It's a wonder to even put those words together, but the Lord Jesus Christ did. But here the Lord Jesus is presented as the one with the seven spirits and the one who holds the seven stars. The seven spirits, we understand, if we go back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, there are six characteristics that are put in combination in Isaiah 11, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which identify the fullness of the Spirit of God. So what do we have here? I know we consider this from chapter 1. You might be thinking if you sat in small groups while the bells are ringing. The seven spirits of God. It's a term that came from Revelation chapter 1. The fullness, the completeness of the Spirit of God. We cannot seek the Spirit of God apart from the person of Christ. He says, I have the Spirit of God. You need life. You're a dead church. You need me. I have the Spirit of God. The completeness, the fullness of the Spirit of God. Bill McDonald said this, it is in the power of the Holy Spirit that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, controls the churches and their messengers. The seven stars we already recognize from Revelation chapter 1 are the seven messengers or the seven angels for that matter. But the seven messengers, whether they be elders, pastors, whatever they were, they were those who would take the message, take the letter back to the church. And hear the Lord Jesus is saying, I hold the seven spirits of God. The fullness, the completeness of the spirit of God is within me. And I hold those who have authority in the church, those seven stars, those seven messengers, those seven angels. And so he says this, I know your works. I know your works. Seven times to the seven churches, the Lord Jesus Christ will reiterate these same words, I know your works. We like to say at times, the Lord knows. The Lord knows. It is true. I hope you believe it. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. He knows our frail frame. He knows the way of righteousness. He knows our tribulation. He knows his sheep. He knows all about me. That's Psalm 139. He knows all things. 1 John 3.20 says... God knows. A.W. Tozer said this, God knows instantly and effortlessly, effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, causes, thoughts, mysteries, enigmas, feeling, desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, personalities, and so forth and so on. The Lord Knows. The Lord knows. He will reiterate this seven times over to the church. I want to suggest to you this morning, this is a plain truth, but a profound truth that has a a severe practical effect on the believer. The Lord knows. Whether it be for consolation or for protection, Or for vindication, the Lord knows, doesn't he? Hey, are are you worried? Do you need consolation? The Lord knows. Do you need protection? The Lord knows. Do you need vindication? Our Lord knows. The Lord knows. Here the context is the context of examination. Hey, I work for the IRS. Nobody likes to think that the IRS knows when it comes to examination. When we think about our Lord here, here he is communicating to the church, the Lord knows for examination. Additionally, in the context is the idea of introspection. Will you look within? The Lord knows. Do you know? Do you know what he sees? He's going to say to this church, you are dead. You're blinded. You can't see, but the Lord knows. Do you know introspection and retribution? The Lord knows, and he knows when it comes to retribution. Hebrews 4, 13 says this, regarding our God who knows. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things lie naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Lord knows. The Lord knows for examination, for introspection, for retribution. This is the context here. The Lord knows sometimes, you know, when we're challenged on something, maybe by a brother or sister, we may say something like, well, you don't know my heart. You don't know my heart. And that's true. Oftentimes I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart, but the Lord sure does. Perhaps we think twice when we say, say those words, you don't know my heart. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knew the heart of the church at Sardis. And you know what he found? That they were dead, that they were dead. Hey, we can say that all day long. We can pass the blame. We can slip from under maybe any condemning words. You don't know my heart, but the Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows exactly where you are. And he's examining. This is what the, the idea we get from the letters to Revelation. He's asking for introspection, and indeed, there will be for many retribution. Many take comfort in a God who knows, but not many take caution in a God who knows. This is the message we're proclaiming to the world, right? This is part of the core of the gospel. God knows you, He knows your heart, He knows your sin. He knows your shortcomings. Yes, we take comfort in a God who knows, Lord, I need consolation. I need protection. I need vindication. But how about examination? How about introspection? How about retribution? The Lord knows. Take caution. This is the message to the church at Sardis. The Lord knows. Now listen to these words. I know your works, that you have a name... That you are alive, but you are dead. There are many solemn words in scripture. These have to stand up toward the top of the list. I know your works. You have a name that you were alive. Hey, it's bad enough if the Lord says you're dead, but he says you have a name that you're alive. But in actuality, I know and I know that you are dead. How can these words be put together? The dead church, that's who we're dealing with here. The church, by definition, is alive. He's made us new creations in Christ, right? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. The son gives life to whomever he will. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. I give them eternal life. I have come that you may have life. The Lord Jesus would say those were all from the gospel of John, by the way, from one book in the Bible. Life. The church, by definition, is alive if it's really the church. It's been born again, regenerated, made new. But here, what solemn words? I know your works. You have a name that you're alive. But I know, and I know that in reality, you are dead. The church is, by definition, a living organism, rebirthed, regenerated, and renewed by the life-giving Spirit of God. How can it be said of a church? You are dead. You are dead. Those are solemn words. And coming from the Savior himself, you are dead. He would say, you have a name. You have a name. We might say it this way. A good name is not a bad thing. Yet a good name is not everything. A good name is not a bad thing. Yet a good name is not everything. You have a name. Reputation is important. But reality is far more important. Isn't it? You have a name. I wonder if we know some. Maybe there's some sitting here that have a family name. And the family name carries with it life because people look back on generations past and they say, you belong to that family? You have a name. Are you one of them? One of that family? Well, I knew some of them. and These were men of God and look at what they've done and what a privilege it is. But the Lord Jesus, you see, He knows. He knows your heart. You may have a family name. You may have a church name. I have had many say to me, over the years you know boulevard bible chapel i hear lots of good things about boulevard bible chapel hey that's nice good reputation but the lord knows the reality and dear saints we that are here that are part of this fellowship we don't want to live on glory past do we We want the life-giving Spirit of God here and now. Good to have a reputation. I'm happy as a young man to enter into the good reputation of Boulevard Bible Chapel and the things of people past, of saints past, the hard work, the labors, the spiritual life, all of it. We've entered into that. But the Lord knows whether there's reality to that. You see, reputation is one thing. A good name is one thing. A good family name is a wonderful thing. But the Lord knows reality. He knows what's within. He knows your mind. He knows your heart. The Lord Jesus would say, I know, I know. And you have a name, but you are dead. How can a church be dead? How could a church that appears to be alive be dead? Perhaps many were more concerned with show than with substance more concerned with programs than with the power of God, more involved in social ills than salvation through the gospel, more taken up with pleasing than with preaching, more concerned with engaging entertainment while hardly a care or desire for evangelizing, encouraging, and exhortation. I don't know exactly how they were dead, but this we know, the Lord Jesus Christ said, you are dead. How does a church become dead? I can only assume that there were some there that were professors, but they were not possessors. They did not have the son of God. They didn't have the spirit of God. And perhaps there were some there who were truly born again, but they were distant from the spirit of God, from the life giving spirit of God. Perhaps the Lord doesn't say exactly. We're given some commands about how they correct this. We don't know exactly, but we do know that oftentimes we can get so caught up in forms and functions, we lose sight of the Savior and of the reality of the power of God and of intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. So how is a dead church to fix this? What are they to do? You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. That was, by the way, the Christ and the condemnation. Both of those are in verse 1. Verse 2, we come, and verse 3, to some commands from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he would say to them, be watchful. Now, I don't know. If I wrote this, if I looked on a dead church, I these might not be the first words that would come out of my mouth. What do you need to do to correct the problem? The Lord Jesus would say to start with this, be watchful. Watch. This is the only church in Revelation that has a command to watch. The idea is not being asleep, but to have eyes open, to wake up. In fact, many times in the word of God, death, spiritual death, is likened or paralleled with slumber. He would say oftentimes to Christians, wake up. Wake up. It's as if the spiritual is right before you, but you don't see the spiritual. It's as if the eternal is right there before you, but you have no eyes for the eternal. Wake up. Don't you see what's going on around you? Do you have eyes for the spiritual? Do you have sight to see? I'm sorry, eyes for the eternal and sight to see the spiritual. Do you have eyes that are open to see what the Lord is doing? Spiritually speaking, sometimes we can fall asleep spiritually, and in that sense, be dead. Whether by persecution or by pleasure, we as Christians can fall asleep. We can drift so far spiritually that it's as if we were dead. And the Lord Jesus would say, be watchful, wake up, open your eyes to what's going on around you. Look at the spiritual work. Hey, when we're walking with the Lord, we see the world in a whole different light, don't we? When we're walking with the Lord, we see the lost as needing the Savior. When we're walking with the Lord, we see the struggling saint who needs encouragement. When we're walking with the Lord, we have eyes to see that, that, that wayward saint that may need exhortation. Eyes to see the spiritual eyes to see the eternal, sight to see the spiritual, be watchful, wake up. And then he would say this, and strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen the things that remain. There would be, even in a dead church, things that were still good, that were commendable. He doesn't list them, but he says to strengthen these things which remain. This tells me something if I kind of back into it. There must have been things going on at Sardis that, hey, they had a good name. People looked in and must have said, I don't know, they must preach the word of God. Maybe they sing hymns. Maybe there's a loving group. I don't know. But there were things that remained there that were good, that were commendable. The Lord Jesus would say, be watchful, open your eyes, wake up. And then strengthen those things which remain. Oftentimes, even if we think of a, like a dead marriage relationship, hey, sometimes we can be, we can be pretty fake, can't we? We can portray everything's well. In reality, there's some serious issues going on. In fact, maybe the marriage is by many uh, senses, it's dead. But we can portray something else. But oftentimes, there are things within there that remain that are good. Hey, you come home from work, you see your wife, that's a good thing. Now, let's strengthen that. For the church at Sardis, I'm sure there were things. Perhaps they did open the scriptures, but no one listened. He would say, keep opening the scriptures, but now listen. There were things, the point, that remained that were good, that were commendable. Now, strengthen those things. They're ready to die. You see, all of those good things are ready to go to the dust. I have not found your works perfect before God or complete before God. The idea is just that they were half-hearted. You've begun many things perhaps, but your works are not perfect. They're not complete. That's That's the idea. Oftentimes that word is translated perfect or complete. Your works are not complete before God. You're half-hearted. You've begun something, you haven't finished it. You've got a Bible study, but nobody learns. You've got preaching, but nobody listens. Things like this. So he would say, I've not found your works perfect or complete before God. Remember. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. We're still thinking about the commands that the Lord Jesus would give to a dead church. Remember. Many times when we get a stirring of the Spirit of God, for whatever the reason, we start to look for something new. There's got to be something new out there. Hey, sometimes um, sometimes a young Christian may pew warm for, for 20 years and from one week to the next, the Spirit of God stirs them. And the next thing they know, they, they want to go be a missionary to a foreign land. Hey, that's not a bad thing. But let's go back to the fundamentals. Remember, he would say, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. It's not always something new, but go back to the gospel. Do you remember the gospel? You remember the core, the essence, the fundamentals of the gospel. Remember these things. Let's go back to this. Remember what you have received, the core doctrines, the fundamentals of the faith. Remember those things. You don't necessarily need something new, but you need what you have received. And heard and hold fast and repent. Uh, if there are a summary of commands from the Lord Jesus, uh, you could say He's called them to watch, to strengthen, to remember, and to repent, to watch, to wake up, to strengthen what things are there, which are good, but perhaps lifeless to remember the fundamentals of the faith, the core of the gospel, and to repent. I want to say to you this morning, praise God that we can repent, that we can repent. I was listening to one brother who told this story about his son who went wayward for a long time and Uh, His son called him one day after being like a prodigal child, just way, way out, doing his own thing. And would call his father with this simple question. Does God forgive? Does God forgive? Absolutely he does, his father would say. Absolutely he does. 1 John 1, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What do you need to do? Well, you need to repent, to repent. One preacher said it like this. Good news. God is a potter and he works with mud. That's you and I. Praise God. We can repent, right? We can come back to the Lord. We can confess our sins to him. We can repent. What is repentance? But it is acknowledging sin, owning sin and turning from sin. What is repentance? But it is facing sin, fessing up to our sin and forsaking our sin. As one said, if we're going to get clean, we've got to come clean. We've got to come clean. Will you confess your sins to the Lord? Will you see these things, open your eyes and see them the way that the Lord sees them? Do you see sin the way that God sees sin? I can assure you that each of us oftentimes need a fresh reminder As to how God sees sin, we were reminded this morning of the gruesomeness of Calvary. There he hung right on the cross. The cost of sin. Do you see sin that way? If you did, well, that's the first step. Because how can I repent if I don't see sin anywhere like what God sees sin? And so open your eyes. Acknowledge sin. Own sin. Turn from sin. Face up to sin. Fess up to sin. And forsake sin if you're going to get clean. You've got to come clean. Let me give you four quick words that are biblical regarding repentance, regarding repentance, because the Lord Jesus has heavy words for you and for me. There may, I I would, it would be hard pressed not to think that there aren't some here, and I've heard the message from the Lord. In some ways, Michael, you're dead. Lord, I am so grateful that I can repent. Let me give you four words that are biblical that go with repentance. One is sorrowful or sorrow. Sorrow is often accompanying repentance. Why? Well, Paul would say to the first to the Corinthians, remember in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you are puffed up about this sin and you have not rather mourned. You have taken pride, some kind of glory in sin going on in your church. You're not mourning about it. You're actually prideful about it. Sorrow, you should have mourned. In Nehemiah 8, when they read the scriptures, they were convicted, they wept. Why? Because the word of God gives you God's analysis of sin. And when we begin to see sin as God sees sin, it brings us to tears, to weeping. How can we not be sorrowful over sin? Sin comes at a cost. We've heard this through the tabernacle, right? The picture was there. Larry said, even as a hunter, the gruesomeness of a neck slid open, of blood spilt there because of the cost of sin. Do you see sin that way? Do you? Lord, help us to see sin that way, to see sin as God sees sin. You know, sometimes we may think about uh, the cost of sin, and maybe we start thinking deeply, and we think like, Lord, you make the rules. I mean, why did you make a cost to sin? And there is a sense in which, you know, God does set the boundaries. He does make the rules. And so the fact that sin costs, well, God makes the rules. Sin costs. But we can see this practically as well, can't we? This is not a stretch that there's a cost to sin, is it? Well, you've seen some that have fallen into adultery. You've seen the devastating effect on the family. You've seen some that have fallen into alcoholism. You've seen the devastating effect of, does sin cost? Practically speaking, and I'm not picking on anyone. I will be the first to raise my hand. I have my own set of issues. I know firsthand sin costs. Practically speaking, it does. There's no way around it. The waywardness of man, the enticements of the world will cost the Christian and they'll cost the one in the world as well. The way of the transgressor is hard. The word of God says it's a hard path to walk. Why? Because practically sin costs. Yes, providentially, God has made it so that sin costs the death of a life. Won't even try to get into substantiating all that, but he has. But we can see practically this is not a stretch. There is a cost to sin. Sin is costly. It hurts. It brings pain. It brings division. It brings darkness. It brings disease. It brings destruction. Sin really does cost. Do you see sin? Are you sorrowful about sin? If you're going to repent, are you sorrowful about sin? Listen to this. Some have tears enough for their outward losses but none for their inward lusts. They can mourn for the evil that sin brings, but not for the sin which brings the evil. Pharaoh more lamented the hard strokes which were upon him than the hard heart which was within him. Esau mourned not because he sold the birthright, which was his sin, but because he lost the blessing, which was his punishment." Do you sorrow over sin? If you don't, if I don't, case number one, why I don't? Because I don't see sin the way the Lord sees sin. I don't have an accurate view of sin. So sorrow over sin. Sorrow does lead to repentance. The Bible makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 7. We should also be sincere in our repentance. I'm giving you four words, by the way. I know that was a lot for one, but sorrowful. Sorrow over sin. Be sincere in your repentance. Be sincere. The Lord, uh, the the God would say in Malachi chapter two, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so He does not regard the offering anymore, nor nor receive it with good will from your hands. They wept, but there was no sincerity in their offerings. No sincerity. In fact, He says, uh, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Here they covered God's altar with tears, so to speak, with sorrow. But there was no sincerity. The Lord would say, I can see what's going on in that home of yours. I can see the way you're dealing with your wife. There's no sincerity to this supposed sorrow. So sincerity and repentance. We ought also to be specific in our repentance. To be specific in our repentance. Just practically speaking, When someone brings an apology to us, well, let's talk about kids. So often when my kids bring an apology, and maybe you've done the same thing, we'll probably ask them, hey, what are you apologizing for? Are you willing to name the sin? One preacher said, sometimes we like to sin retail, but repent wholesale. We sin specifically, but at best we repent generically. We ought to be specific with God and our repentance. Achan, and albeit he's not a very good example in the Bible, but he does say this in his confession, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. And then he spells it out. Lord, this is what I did. This was sin. We can be specific about our sins with the Lord, can't we? Shouldn't we, if we're really repentant of them? So don't rename your transgressions. Lastly, when we think about repentance, we should be scriptural. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Hey, how do I know what's right and wrong? How do I know where I've missed the mark? We need the word of God. Our repentance should be scriptural. Maybe sometimes we're overwhelmed with guilt and it's not even biblical. We don't know the word of God. So let our repentance be scriptural, sorrowful and sincere And specific and scriptural, praise God, we can repent. David would tell us in Psalm 32, in layman's terms, oh, the freedom of fessing up. Oh, the freedom of fessing up. Oh, the release when we repent, David would say, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. That didn't come until he confessed his sins to God and repented until he turned from his sin. Oh, the freedom in up. Oh, the release when we repent. Does God forgive? Indeed, God forgives. And so he would say to the church at Sardis, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This challenge is given throughout the word of God, that there will be some who will be caught off guard by the return of Christ. That's simply put. If you're not watching, if you have no eyes for the eternal, if you have no sight for the spiritual, you'll be caught off guard by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be many in the world, all of the world essentially, who don't know the Lord. They'll be blindsided by the coming of the Lord. They have no eyes for the eternal. They have no sight for the spiritual. They don't see it. But there may be Christians as well. The Lord Jesus would say in Matthew, I believe, 22, very similar words, actually Matthew 24 that we could be so asleep at times that his coming would take us by surprise. 1 Thessalonians 5 is the same idea. And so he would say to the church at Sardis, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Then he says this, you have Revelation uh, 3 and verse 4. We now transition to this commendation. There is a commendation to the church at Sardis, but it's only to a few. Only to a few. You have, Revelation 3, 4, a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There were still a faithful few in Sardis. There were still a faithful few. And the Lord knew who these faithful few were. Sometimes we can be discouraged with the people of God Maybe sometimes hopefully it's accurate. We feel like we're the only ones doing the work of God If that were the case the Lord knows He knows you're one of the faithful few if that's you and I hope we have some here today That are part of the faithful few that carry on Holy lives diligent lives committed lives steadfast lives to the Lord If you're part of the faithful few the Lord knows that the Lord identifies you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. There is a sense in which a sense in which our God is a god of the few, of the few. Matthew 7:14 Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and few there are who find it. Matthew 9:37 The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Matthew 15, in the feeding of the 4,000, it took a few little fish. And First Peter 3, regarding going back to that destruction in the ark, all the way back to Genesis chapter 6, it says this, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. We could take many different lessons from this. No doubt these were words of comfort to the faithful few at Sardis. The Lord has given a scathing introduction to his letter, right? You're a dead church. Imagine the messenger comes in. Here comes the angel or the messenger, and he brings the letter in, and he reads the letter to them. You folks at Sardis, I got news for you. The Lord Jesus said, you've got a name that you're alive, but in actuality, he knows you, and you are dead. Imagine being one of the faithful few there sitting there thinking, what a condemnation. But Lord, you can see that I'm, I'm by your grace. I'm pressing forward. I've not given up. I'm persevering. There were a faithful few. Don't be discouraged by the failure of the people of God. Don't be because the Lord knows he knows even the few who carry on for him. And I hope it's not a few here, by the way. I hope it's all of us that carry on faithfully. But I'm just saying at times the people of God may fail you and may not carry on. But the Lord knows if you're one of those who are faithfully carrying on. Our God is in a sense a God of the few. Fame and fortune never thrilled our Savior, but His focus was often on A few souls. Politicians may be interested in the masses for their votes. Performers may be interested in the crowds for the sake of their pockets to pad their pockets. Producers may be interested in the multitudes for the sake of their ratings. But the all-powerful God is interested in the few, in the individual. You can be one of the few. Never mind what everyone else is doing in that sense. Yes, we care for one another. But we press on. Lord, your people may be failing you. I may belong to a church where I see failure. But I want to be some of the faithful few. And the Lord knows who you are. You have a few who have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The white garments are brought up in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 4 and verse 5, verse 4, and verse 5. It's very helpful to consider a contrasting verse, or actually more of a parallel verse in Revelation 7. As we think about the white garments in verse 4 and 5, just quickly look, As this helped me, to Revelation 7 and verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The white garments come from the Lord Jesus Christ. It belo- they belong to those who have washed their garments in that sense, as ironic as it is, in the blood of the lamb. How do you get white garments spiritually? Well, he washed them in red blood, the blood at Calvary. And you'll be one of those with white garments. To put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him as Savior, he will give to you the white garments. He will make you worthy, not because you're worthy, but because he is worthy. Revelation 3, verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Who is the overcomer? But he who is in Christ Revelation uh, chapter 6 and verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering. That's the same word, overcoming. He went out conquering and to conquer. So he, who is he who overcomes? Who is he who overcomes here today? But he who is in Christ, because he's the one one who went out conquering and to conquer. So he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. How will I overcome? But by the blood of the lamb. And by the way, that word is used time and time again throughout the scripture, overcoming, conquering. By the way, it's the Greek word, nikao. I'm sure you've heard this before. It's where the word Nike comes from, to conquer to conquer. I'm not promoting the brand, by the way, but that's the idea. He's the one who conquers. I am in him. Therefore, I'm a conqueror. I'm an overcomer and I'll be clothed in white garments. And he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. This is a challenging statement. In fact, this statement alone is probably enough for many preachers to say, "Ah, no, thank you. I won't take that passage. It's a challenging statement. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I'm fully persuaded that the intent of the Lord Jesus here is to proclaim a statement of assurance, of assurance. It's not a threat to the Christian. It's a statement of assurance. I will not blot out your name from the book of life. What is the book of life? Some believe that the book of life contains all the names of anyone who's ever lived. Others, I think there's two main views, others see the book of life as only containing the names of the Christians, of those who are born again. Whatever your position is on the matter, the Lord Jesus gives these words of assurance. I will not blot out your name from the book of life. Well, one may rightly ask then, can he blot out a name from the book of life? Think about your child coming to you worried. Think about the faithful few who heard this scathing letter. Here they are sitting. I'm part of a dead church. What will happen to me? The Lord Jesus is not happy with what's going on here. Until he brings these words to them. You listen. You overcome. You'll be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out your name from the book of life. They're words of assurance, words of assurance. If you're part of the overcoming group, overcoming how by Christ, because he conquers, he goes out to conquer and he conquers and you're part of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are one of those who overcomes, who conquers and whose name will not be blotted out from the book of life. It's like my child coming to me and saying, I'm a little worried, dad. Uh, would you ever give me away? And I say to them, I would never give you away. What if someone even gave you money, dad? I would never sell you no matter what the price to be paid. I will not blot out your name from the book of life. It's not a statement of threat. It's a statement of assurance. You can be assured that God knows who you are, the faithful few, and he will not blot out your name from the book of life. Five other times that word is used, by the way, in the New Testament, the Greek word, blot out. Sometimes it's translated wipe out, blot out or wipe out. Listen to these four other references. This helped me as I think about the assurance of this statement. Five times the word is used, one in Revelation 3 and four other times. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins Maybe blotted out. That's a statement of assurance. Colossians 2.14, having wiped out or blotted out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That's a statement of assurance. It's never used in the context of someone's name actually being blotted out of the book of life, but it's a proclamation of promise to the faithful few. Reference number four if we count revelation 3 we've got acts 319 colossians 214 revelation 717 listen to this for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters and god will wipe away blot out every tear from their eyes and finally revelation 20 verse 4 and god will wipe away blot out every tear from their eyes. This is a statement of assurance, of promise to the faithful few. You may be part of a dead church, but I know who you are. Your name will not be blotted out from the book of life. That's the church at Sardis. Very quickly and very quickly, and I mean that, if you do the math, you're like, we're going to be here till one o'clock because we've got two churches. But very quickly, the church at Philadelphia. Just a couple of comments and then we'll close. Revelation 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no no one opens. We heard this morning already in our breaking of bread meeting, I hope you didn't miss it, about the one who has authority authority, that he even throughout that walk to Calvary was in complete control, right? That's what we were hearing. He was in control. This is the picture here. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. When we take this in context, we see that in verse nine, this church at Philadelphia was under persecution by the synagogue of Satan. I don't know who these people were, but they must've been bad. They professed to be Jews, but they weren't the real deal. The Lord Jesus would say, I am true. I am the real deal. Those Jews of verse 9, they may be false. He says, indeed, they lie, but I'm true. I will make them come, he would say in verse 9, and worship before your feet. This is he, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy and who is true. In spite of the persecution, which may have been unjust and the sin around them, the Lord Jesus is holy, and he is true. He is the real deal. And he would say this, I, uh, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, um, will probably end on this point. These faithful followers in Philadelphia may have been pushed out of the synagogue. They may have been cut off by society. They may have been under some form of intense persecution, but the Lord Jesus Christ reminds them, I am he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I hold the key to the kingdom. Hey, the synagogue, you forget about the synagogue. I hold the key to the kingdom. I hold the key to the kingdom as to who enters and who does not enter. I hold the key to the kingdom in the sense that I hold the inheritance, the treasures of all that is in Christ. He would say this, I know your works in verse 8. I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. I've set before you an open door. Where does that door lead? Well, just for reference sake, you can note Revelation chapter 4 in verse 1. A door was opened up for John into heaven. And what did he see? But the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is in Christ, dear saint, is yours. You're part of a faithful church. This was the church at Philadelphia. They were part of a faithful church. All that is in Christ is yours. You may be shut out of society. You may have some kind of persecution like they did, like the synagogue of Satan is against you. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he holds the key to the kingdom. He holds the key to spiritual blessing and inheritance. This goes back to Isaiah 22. He holds it all. This is available to you. Don't get caught up in what you've missed out on on the world. Don't worry about the synagogue of Satan. If you've got persecutors, you've got those that have shut you out. You don't worry about that. The world does not have what we have. We have Christ. We have his inheritance. We have his treasures. We have all that is in Christ. Like our good dear brother who's passed away, Steve Pappas would say, the world's got nothing on us. Nothing on us. Why? Because we belong to him and he holds the key to the kingdom of God and all the blessings that are there and all the inheritance that is there. The world's got nothing on us. Don't you worry, he would say to the church at Philadelphia about those of the synagogue of Satan. I hold the keys to the kingdom. And the very last part, and I promise we'll stop, as we're right at our time here. He would say to them this you have a little strength, Revelation three, verse eight, have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church at Philadelphia was commended, was commended. First of all, they had a little strength. Perhaps you at times feel like them, a person of little strength. I don't want to be too cute and our practical application of the word of God, but it's blatantly true. The story of the Bible is by and large a story of God using the ordinary man to do extraordinary things. God uses weak individuals. You see your calling, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many mighty Not many noble, according to the flesh, have been called. You look around the room and you may say, these are a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of losers. You may look at the disciples and the apostles and say, who are these men? They're nothing. Because the Lord delights in elevating the humble. And the Lord also, I don't know if he delights in it, but he certainly is active in humbling those who elevate themselves. You have a little strength. You may say that's me Lord I don't have much strength I feel like I'm barely hanging on The Lord delights in using the small the weak those of little strength for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest It is not a matter of great strength not of great ability but of great dependability You can be too God for, too big for God to use But you can never be too small. You have a little strength. And then they were commended for keeping God's word and not denying his name. This message to Philadelphia is as true today as it ever has been. Will you keep his word? Will you Uphold the name of Christ. Listen, there are lots of people in the culture around us. Lots. I'm not pointing fingers. But in broad Christendom, there are lots who profess the name of Christ. They don't deny his name, but they devalue his word. They they, they, they take the word of God and they discard it in the name of Christ at times. Imagine that. That the words of Christ, that the word of God would be taken and cast aside, would be devalued. Meanwhile, we uphold it in the name of Christ. There are many in broad Christendom, many in liberal Christianity that do not care for the word of God. They do not keep his word, but they claim the name of Christ the church at Philadelphia was commended, not for their clever coffee shop, not for their entertainment, not for any of that. And I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list of what pleases the heart of God, but they were commended for two things, for keeping the word of God and for not denying the name of Christ. What about you? What about the word of God? I tell you, You start listening, click around on YouTube a little bit, you'll find lots of people who profess the name of Christ but want nothing to do with His Word. Nothing. They devalue it. They discard it. they got nothing to do with the Word of God. They turn it into their own words, but they do it in the name of Christ. It's an awful thing. The Lord Jesus Christ believed the Word of God. He upheld the Scriptures. He did. He believed in Noah, the ark. He believed in Jonah. What more more crazy story do you have in the word of God? He believed that Jonah spent three nights in the belly of the whale. He believed it. The Lord Jesus' words confirm that. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, even so I'll be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there are lots in Christendom who take the word of God and discard it. What nothing to do with the word of God. But in the name of Christ, the Christ who loves the word of God and elevates the word of God, and holds to the word of God, and he believed all of it. He even affirmed Adam and Eve, by the way, the words of Jesus. He believed all of it. May God help us. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the message that is there for us, the message for the Christian and for those who profess Christ. Help us, O God, to be introspective. Help us, O God, to heed your word. We thank you for not only the challenge in your word, but for the comfort as well. We look forward to your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen.